As you saw uh, this past week, our girls were at GA camp, and so Lincoln got to be an only child for a couple of days, and so uh, Brittany and I took him to Dallas uh, because he spooled rotten. Uh, but on the way, you know, we had the obligatory stop in Terrell uh, at Bucky's, right? Are you familiar with Bucky's? Most people. If you're not, just imagine that they took a Walmart, a convenience store, a rest stop, and uh, a toy store and kind of crammed it in one place and then put some really clean bathrooms with it, okay? That's Bucky's. And when you're a kid, it is a magical place, right? Like, there's not a whole lot of places you can buy a toy. Uh, a bag of beef jerky, a fresh pastry, and meet someone in a giant beaver costume in like 10 minutes, right? Like it's, it's a big deal to stop at Bucky's. Now, when I was a kid, it was a lot different. If my dad stopped, and I do mean if, uh, it was one of those little rest stops on the side of the road, right? With the really hot kind of gross bathrooms, and they maybe had a vending machine that he said was too expensive, but mom might buy you something from it if you were really good, right? Uh, and so Lincoln has a lot different experience than I have at Bucky's, but the idea of both is the same, right? You're driving, you need a place to rest, to pull over, to stretch your legs, to refill the car, right, to get some snacks. And so whether it's an uncommonly hot little gross bathroom or a giant convenience store, the point is the same, right? You need a place to stop and rest, to stretch your legs. So sometimes we need a minute to rest, and sometimes we need to stop and spend the night, right? So we know that. Sometimes a rest is just a minute, and sometimes it's a extended, but we know that we need rest, and we're not talking about just driving. We build in all kinds of rest in our day-to-day lives. We have lunch breaks, coffee breaks, weekends, holidays, right? Times to stop and rest from our day-to-day labors, right? We understand this. It's built into us, and we know that because God modeled rest for us when he rested on the seventh day, right? He, he modeled for us that rest was important. And important for his creation. It was so important that he commanded his people to set aside a whole day for rest. Like we know that as human beings, we need rest, right? And so what Jesus does is Jesus uses this physical idea of rest in our text today to talk about a deeper spiritual need for rest in our lives. And so he kind of connects the two today. And so what I want us to do is look at Matthew 11, If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew 11. We're going to be at the end of the chapter, verse 28, uh, looking at just a few verses there. And so Jesus is going to twice uh, talk about rest in Matthew 11. And we're going to look at uh, under two divisions. The first one is a rest received, and the second one is a rest realized. And so have your Bibles uh, to Matthew 11. We're going to talk about resting in Jesus. And so if you have them, you can follow along. If not, it'll be on the screen for you. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so let's stop with just that verse for a second. And let's look at what Jesus is offering here is a rest received. That's our first division this morning, a rest received. Now, as we think about this idea, uh, there's a sense in which this speech is a pattern for Jesus, uh, where Jesus invites him uh, hears to understand that he is the answer to our greatest need, right? He has kind of a pattern. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me, right, and drink. Whoever believes in me out of scripture, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst, right? There's a, there's a pattern here where there's a need, and Jesus points to being the fulfillment of that greater 
need. Like, there's some universality in these statements, right? Like, everyone knows what it's like to be hungry. Everyone knows what it's like to be thirsty. Like, this is a part of the common human experience. Similarly, laboring and struggling life is a common enough experience, right? Most of us know what it's like to work too hard, uh, to work too long. Uh, Most of us felt burdens financially, familial, or socially. Like, we know what it's like to labor and to be burdened. And so I think Jesus is speaking in a similar way today as he does when he talks about water and when he talks about food. Now talking about rest, I think he's speaking uh, about something that, that we know and we experience. But intuitively, like, we know he's not referencing just the physical, right? Like, we don't come to Jesus and expect to never have to drink water again, right? We understand that he's referencing something beyond that. We don't come to Jesus and then never eat again because he's the bread of life. Like, we understand he's referencing something beyond the physical. And I think it's the same today when he talks about rest. He's not just talking about physical rest, but he's talking about a, a, a spiritual rest. When he is referencing spiritual thirst or spiritual hunger, we know he's talking about that, that spiritual hunger that is not able to be satisfied by the things of the world. That, that longing to be free of the bondage of sin, a longing to be in right relationship to our creator, a sense of unrest and dissatisfaction as long as we are separated from God. Now, those that are lost may not articulate it that way, right? They may not say it that way, that they, they are, they're hungering and thirsting for something that cannot be satisfied, but the evidence is there, right? A string of toxic relationships or one-night stands, bouts with drugs and abuse of alcohol, right? Constant changing jobs or buying new things, new cars, new phones, new clothes, right? The evidence that there is something inside of them that is dissatisfied is there. The thirst and hunger for something bigger than the world has to offer. This is the human experience apart from God. And we see it in every ad We see it in every relationship. We see someone without God. There is a hunger and a thirst, a void in their life. I think this is why Jesus uses imagery that provokes our understanding of desiring something as normal as water or as regular as food. He uses that to remind us that there is a deeper spiritual hunger and a deeper spiritual thirst that that needs to be met. And so today, I think he's talking about the same thing, but from a different perspective, one that touches on our attempts to meet this inner need in our own strength, in our own ways. Let's look together at the way Jesus implores men and women to stop what they're doing and come to him. He says this, he says in verse 28, come to me. It's pretty simple, right? But the language is interesting to me because it's not a command. You won't find an imperative in the language until uh, later in verse 9 when he says, take, as in take my yoke. Rather, this is an interjection, something to grab intention. It's an invitation. Come to me. Well, who's it an invitation to? All who labor and are heavy laden. Now, this is one of the most beautiful invitations in Scripture, right? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And one of the things that makes it so beautiful is it comes shortly after Jesus makes this statement in Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, referencing God's sovereignty and his divine choice. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now he's clarifying and further praising 
the father, as in 25, he praises God for divinely choosing to conceal things from some and reveal them to others. Now, this is commonly referred to as the doctrines of predestination and election, uh, and it is something that is taught in Scripture. Now, we don't ever debate whether or not God predestines because the Scripture says so, but we debate on what he, the basis he elects to predestination. So we're not going to get into that this morning because it's not in the text, right? It suffices to say that Jesus says it is God's choice to reveal himself. And this is what I want you to see why it's beautiful. God says, Jesus says, he alone has the ability to reveal the Father to anyone. But then what does he say? Come to me, all that labor and are heavy laden. So he has the ability to reveal the Father and he has the desire to reveal the Father to any that would come to him, right? To all who labor and heavy laden. And so uh, it's beautiful because you have this scope, all. But it's also beautiful to whom the invitation is issued. Jesus says, come to me all who are worth it. Right? Come to me all who uh, can earn it. Not at all. Come to me all who are wise and understanding. No. All who are powerful, wealthy, and important. No, no, and no. He says all who labor and are heavy laden. It is a call, an issue to those that are burdened, that are wearisome from the labor of life. Now, these two words are related and yet distinct enough for us to look at them. He says, those who labor, and that means someone who has grown weary or tired or exhausted with the effort of labor. You know, you know what that feeling's like, right? Where you've just worked yourself and there's, there's nothing left. You're weary, you're tired. He says, those who are laboring and there is a sense in that this is present active form in the greek signifying all those who are currently experiencing weariness from laboring it is in the midst of being weary that he calls us right not those who've experienced weariness or those who might be weary he says those who are experiencing weariness in the midst of their labor come to me right in the in the the depth of your weakness come to me in being overwhelmed by the labor and the burden, come to me, right? And then he says, all who are heavy laden. And the idea is those who have had a burden placed upon them, and we find that uh, instead of being an active present form, it is a perfect passive, which means those that have been placed under a burden. And so this is what we have when we take them together. Come to me, all those who are weary right now, from carrying the burden that has been placed on them, right? This is the call that he makes. Come to me, all who are weary, who labor, and are heavy laden. So we have to ask this point, what is the burden that he's referring to, right? Because if he's calling all those who labor and are heavy laden, what's the burden he's referring to? So if we go to Matthew 23, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read the first four verses. Jesus says to the crowd and his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. See, the scribes and the Pharisees had taken God's law, and they had added to it, and they had added layer upon layer and, and, and All of this, and so rest from your labors on the Sabbath day. 
A good command became a list of things you could and could not do on the Sabbath, as tedious as a man could write a two-letter word, but not a three-letter word, because three letters would be working, right? This was the extent that they dealt with the law. One commentator illustrated this way to, to a modern audience, and I thought it was good. We know the Bible says that drunkenness is a sin. So this, the Pharisees would say, therefore, just don't drink any alcohol so you can be safe from that, that law. But then they would go further and say, you know, to avoid temptation, it's best not even to use wine in your cooking, right? So you go a little further so you don't even get close. And then you probably shouldn't even have it in a restaurant so you need to make sure to ask the waiter or the cook if they use wine in their cooking because you have to stay away from it. But you can't really trust waiters to tell you the truth, so you shouldn't even eat at a restaurant that has wine on the premises, right? You see the way the Pharisees did the law? Now I want you to imagine them treating every single good law of God that way. Can you imagine the burden? Can you imagine how weary it would be to know if you were walking in obedience? If you would mess up? Jesus says they strain at gnats, right? Like that was the level of the law. And so they put this burden on people. They taught a religion, a way to God that promoted works as the way to be right from God to God with God apart from salvation was not possible. And so they laid this heavy burden on the people of God and they increased it as time went on to add more and more layers. You know, Peter. We often forget that Peter, this this bold, loud fisherman was a Jew. And so he was familiar with the law and its demands and its burdens. And this is what he writes, or this is what he says, rather, in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. Now, this council was convened because there were some that were telling the Gentiles they had to submit to the Jewish law, right? They had to submit to the law in order to be followers of Christ. And so they convened this council. And this is what Peter says. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Peter says, wait a second. We as Jews could not perfectly keep the law. Our fathers as Jews could not perfectly keep the law. Why are you trying to put that unbearable yoke on Gentiles? So let us return to our statement that Jesus makes. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Well, who is the all? Those who labor and are heavy laden. What burden are they laboring under? Trying to fulfill the law. Why are they trying to fulfill the law? Because they want to experience salvation in God, right? So who is the all then? The all is someone who has recognized their need for salvation and their desire for God, and they're trying to fulfill it in their own power. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, And I will give you rest. This is what Jesus offers this group of men and women who are trying to keep the law in their own power and trying to accomplish salvation by their works. He says, what you need is rest. Rest means exactly what you think it does. Stop. Stop laboring in your own power. Stop trying to be good enough How will they get this rest? Will they finish their labors? Impossible. They couldn't keep the law. Will they abandon their effort? Then that would be abandoning the desire to want to be right with God. So they can't finish it and they can't quit it. And so what do they need? They will be given it by Christ. 
Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You won't earn it. It won't be because you give up on God. It'll be because I give it to you. Amen? A gift is inherently not something that is earned, but received. To come to Jesus is to receive rest from your attempts at being right with God. To come to Jesus is to receive rest from your attempts at being right with God. How is that possible? Because Jesus has already lived a perfect, sinless life. The Bible says he was without sin, tempted as though we are, fully man and never sinned. He never was outside of God's will. Why does that matter? Because Jesus then died in the place of sinful men so that his righteousness might be imputed to us. He took our sin on the cross, bearing the weight of it, so that we might come to him and rest from our attempts to earn the unearnable by receiving what he and he alone could ever earn. I want you to listen to this. Jesus essentially says that inner desire to try to be right with God that desire that leads us to religion or philanthropy or self-improvement, that desire is not wrong, it's just misplaced. You're laboring under a burden that you can't carry. Come to me and find rest. That hunger for God, that inner desire that tells you something is wrong, is good and godly, just stop trying to meet it in your own power and come to the only one who can meet it and receive rest from your labor. This is the invitation that Jesus makes. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the first type of rest, a rest received. But Jesus says next in our text that this rest does not mean that there is nothing for us to do. There is not any labor for us to be about. We receive rest, but then that frees us from trying to secure salvation in our own power. But Jesus offers another rest in the next two verses. First, we'll pick up at verse 29. Jesus says, after offering this rest, this gift, he says, take up my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Right? And so the second point we're going to look at is a rest realized. And so we, we've received the rest that God gave us, and now we're going to talk about this second rest. Jesus unyokes us from this impossible burden of the law and then invites us to a different kind of labor. As I mentioned in the beginning, this is our first imperative, our first command, take my yoke upon you. Now the yoke comes from the agricultural world, like right, we don't see a lot of yokes, but in its simplest form, it's a wooden beam that connects two animals together so that they can labor together in order to accomplish a task that is too big for one of them, right? So they're yoked together. To, to pull or to uh, plow. And in the Old Testament, the imagery of the yoke became synonymous with the burden uh, of enslavement. Uh, God used it to, in the prophecies of men to describe what God's, their enslavement would be like to form powers. They would be under the yoke of bondage. And in Jewish literature, we find some rabbis use the imagery to refer to any burden, right? Whether good or bad, it was considered a yoke. And that is the imagery that Jesus employs now. He says, take my burden upon you and you will find the yoke is both easy and the burden is light. And so Jesus offers us this agricultural picture 
of taking off the yoke, the burden of the law, the yoke that we try to pull in our own power and says, rather, put on my yoke, take up my yoke. And then he offers a, a seemingly secondary agricultural picture when he says, learn from me. As the way I understand it, it was common practice to yoke an experienced animal with an inexperienced one that needed to be trained. The idea was as the experienced animal went about the path that he was supposed to take, the inexperienced animal would learn how to do it. And so Jesus essentially doesn't invite us to take up a yoke by ourselves, but he says, take up my yoke. Be yoked with me and learn from me. Follow me. As a disciple, as a learner, as a pupil, we are invited to seek to be like our master. This is the essence of being a Christian. It is becoming more and more like Christ. He says, how do we learn that? He says, you learn it from him. Well, how do you learn it from him? You yoke yourself together with him, right? You, you, you walk with him, you follow him, and you learn from him. This is what it means to follow Christ. I love this because he highlights first what we will learn from him, and then secondly, what the experience will be like. He says, first, after you take up my yoke to learn from me, you will find that I am gentle and lowly in heart. Gentle uh, is the word meek, uh, meekness, gentleness. These are, these are synonymous uh, here in our scripture. It's a, it's a mildness, uh, mildness of disposition. It's a gentleness of spirit. It is, it is just meekness. It's not weakness, uh, but it's rather meekness. The opposite of self-asserting, right? The opposite of, of uh, aggression, this meekness. He says, I am both gentle and lowly in heart. And literally, he says, I am humble in heart. In what opposition Jesus stands, not only to the culture of his day, but in our day as well. Like the message we hear is the way to satisfaction in life is to be aggressive, to look out for number one, right? To take what you, you need, to push, pull, climb, claw your way to the top, because then you will be happy, Right? The way to happiness is a higher sense of self, because after all, you deserve it, right? This is the way the world communicates. More self-esteem, more self-interest, more aggressiveness, right? The winner is the one that comes out on top. This is the world's message. And this is so natural to us because it resonates with our sinful, selfish hearts. It doesn't take much to convince someone to try and get what they want or that they deserve whatever it is they want. We see it in our kids, right, from a very early age. They will do anything to get that thing that they want. They will act outside of their normal character to get what they want because they believe naturally that it, they deserve it because they want it. Especially in America, but places like America, where there's this abundance of opportunity and wealth to be had, even the poorest in our culture can have it better than millions of other people around the world. Rather than being satisfied with what we have, whether enough for the day or enough for a lifetime, it is never enough to satisfy. You've no doubt heard the story of John D. Rockefeller, right? Uh, first billionaire in America and once the richest man in the world. A reporter once asked him at the height of his wealth, he said, how much is enough money? And very calmly and clearly he said, just a little more, right? Just a little more. 
Now we scoff at someone that has a billion dollars and it's not enough, but there are millions of people in the world that would be just as flabbergasted when you or I change a well-paying, secure job for just a little more money. When we take a perfectly good phone down and trade it in because it has just a little more features. When we trade a car in because it, the new one has just a little more speed, a little more class, a little more luxury, right? When we change houses because the new one has a little more room or a little more whatever it is, right? We're constantly about this little more. And so we go about our lives trading and moving and all this for just a little more. I'm convinced that if we took anyone from an impoverished country in the world and had them follow any one of us around for a week, they would have that same question. What is enough? How are you not happy? How are you not joyful? How much would it take? How much would be enough? And if we're honest, we would have to say, just a little more. As soon as I get that next raise, I'll finally be able to pay off that thing, build that shop, buy that thing. Just a little more. A little nicer lawnmower, right? Just a little more, just a next model car. It'll be the last one I need, right? Just a little more in my 401k, just a little more in my retirement, just a little more is the war cry of us in America. How different is that than what Jesus tells us? And listen, I highlight this desire for more because it's so often closely related to self-interest and assertiveness as well as a prideful, elevated spirit that's so common in man. The consumer mindset is driven by self-interest and self-inflated sense of being. You can learn that from anyone. But Jesus offers a different lesson. He says, follow me in my gentle and humble way. The opposite of everything we just talked about. Now, we could easily spend an entire sermon examining all of the examples of these characteristics of our Lord. But for this morning, I just want to share a quick summary from Scripture. Philippians 2 says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, it's easy to see the Lord's humility in that verse, right? But don't miss his gentleness. The way of his humble obedience that 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 verse so succinctly summarizes encompasses the gentle way he loved and served and taught Judas who he knew he was going to betray, right? Who Judas was going to betray Jesus. He served him and he loved him and he, he treated him well, gently. The gentle way he bore insult in the many attempts on his life, the gentle way that he accepted the imperfect worship of a woman with a bad reputation, the gentle way he called the promiscuous Samaritan woman to repentance, the gentle way he healed one of the servants that struck that Peter struck in his arrest, the gentle way he restored Peter on the beach after his denial, the gentle reproach of Thomas who doubted his resurrection. Every page of Jesus' story shows his gentleness as we watch his, his humble, obedient march to the cross. So don't miss, when Jesus says, I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart, we have Ample evidence that this is a true statement. Even, and I thought about this, even in his most aggressive and most zealous encounter, you remember it, he sits down at the temple and he braids a whip. 
And then he runs out the money changers and he flips over tables, right? And he won't let anyone pass through. Even in that moment, I want you to understand the kind of power that Jesus had. He could have called fire down from heaven. He could have thought and everyone died, right? Like this is the level of power he had. And yet he ran them out of the temple in Zale. He was still gentle in his most aggressive day, right? Jesus modeled this gentleness, this power under control. This is what he would have us learn. This is the way of a follower of Christ. Every time we selfishly assert ourselves, every time we prop ourselves up with a new and better thing, every time we aggressively put ourselves first, we pull against the yoke of our master. He is gentle. Every time we buy into the lie that we deserve something other than we have, every time we elevate ourselves higher than we should, every time we unjustifiably place ourselves over another, we pull against the yoke of our master. He is humble in heart. What burden it must be as he patiently corrects and directs his followers and we continually pull away from the yoke. He says, follow me, I'm gentle and humble in heart. And we put that yoke on and then we act prideful. Or we put that yoke on and we pull in the way of self-assertiveness. How patient is our Lord? And when a lesser man would give up, when a lesser man would throw in the towel and say, this animal is not worth training, this is the promise of scripture. Even in that moment, in the midst of our stubbornness, he is gentle. He continues to call us to follow him, to keep in step with him, to pull in the right direction. Thank goodness for a gentle master. Amen. Because I know I have not been a good yoke fellow. I've pulled in the wrong direction, and yet Jesus just gently guides and leads and corrects. And as we walk with him, we learn from him gentleness, and we learn from him meekness. And we, we put off the yoke of, of pride and we put on the yoke of meekness. We put off the, the yoke of aggressive self-interest and we put on the yoke of gentleness. And that sounds really difficult, but then Jesus tells us what the experience will be like. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy and the, the idea there is opposite of hard. It is mild. It is pleasant. What a contrast. Jesus says, come to me, those who are wearied by their heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Now take my yoke upon you and learn from me, understanding that the work is easy and the burden is light. You've put off the impossible. Now put on something that is easy and light and pleasant. Apostle John wrote later in life. He says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. That is, the yoke is not heavy. Like, John, weren't you persecuted? John, didn't you watch your brothers and sisters be martyred? John, weren't you exiled to an island later in life? Didn't you have this difficult life in Christ? Yes, friend, but the burden is light when you're walking with Jesus. The Apostle John wrote that in 1 John after he'd experienced much persecution. He said, listen, the burden of following God is not burdensome. It's almost inconceivable that John could have the life he had and say that the commandment to follow God is not burdensome, except 
that John had found what Jesus tells us we will find when we take up his yoke and walk with Christ in obedience, you will find rest for your souls. And here rest can mean a quiet, calm expectation. Which is a perfect explanation of the Christian life, right? For your souls. An everlasting rest in the finished work of Christ that is evidenced by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the rest that Jesus offers. Notice with me that Jesus says this rest is not one that is given, but one that is found. Spurgeon, uh, the great prince of preachers, described it like this. He says, imagine being given by Christ a beautiful golden box ordained by, or adorned by all these jewels when you are saved. That is the rest. You no longer have to labor for your salvation. But as you examine it and you study it and you run your hands over it, it delicate features, you find a drawer one day. And when the drawer opens, the most precious jewel is inside. It was yours from the very beginning, but you found it through seeking. Jesus gives us rest, but he says if we will walk with him, if we will live with him, if we will follow him, we can have rest. As you walk in obedience to Christ, as you learn from his gentleness, as you learn humility, you will find that his rest is so much bigger than just rest from trying to earn God's favor. It is a rest from the world's mission to consume more. It is a rest from the world's message of self-centered living. It is a rest from the world's mindset of constant activity and constant stimulation. It is an invitation to live a quiet, calm life of expectation that God will set all things right in the end. Jesus not only offers us rest from trying to earn favor with God, he offers us rest that we can rest in God's finished work. Amen? That as we labor with and for the Lord, we know that we are laboring for things that have eternal value. This life is the abundant life Jesus came to give. A life of rest, not just from our trying to earn our salvation, but a rest in him as we walk and follow him. Right? This is where I want to come to a close. Many of you have experienced the first kind of rest when you came to Jesus but many of you are not experiencing the rest for your souls that Jesus promised. Your life is lacking joy and peace. Your attitude is lacking gentleness and patience. Your relationships are lacking love and kindness and self-control. You know it shouldn't be this way, but it is. Why? Because you have not responded to his invitation to take his yoke upon you, to follow him completely with your life. Listen, are you did and you're too busy trying to pull against the yoke and live the way the world wants you to live while being yoked to Jesus, which means you get neither. You get neither the peace that comes with walking with Jesus or the freedom to do whatever you want. It is a miserable life to be yoked to Jesus and trying to live and pull in a different way. Jesus offers rest only when we fall in line with his teachings and his life and follow him. Listen, it is not supposed to be that way. Christ did not just save you from something. He saved you to something. He saves you and gives you rest and offers you a chance to find deeper and deeper expressions of his rest as you follow him. Now this morning, there's a good chance that there are those here that need that kind of rest. As you're listening, you, maybe you've never gotten the rest from Jesus and you're still trying to save yourself. 
You thought maybe if you came to church enough, if you read your Bible enough, if you tithed enough, or if you if you helped uh, impoverished people enough, that somehow God would say you're good enough. And listen, I know that burden, and it's heavy. Because how good is good enough? And how hard do you have to work to be accepted? And what happens when you mess up? The burden of saving yourself is heavy, and Jesus offers rest from that life. The work is finished. It is completed. He cried out, it is finished. And he fulfilled the requirement of the law so that we might, by grace through faith, faith through grace, accept the offer of salvation. And listen, that may be where you are today. Others of you may have rested from trying to save yourselves, but now you are trying to live the Christian life in your own power, and you have found it cumbersome, and you have found it difficult. This is not the experience Jesus desires for you. Today, decide to take up his yoke and learn from him, understanding that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, and begin to find the rest your soul so desperately desires. Amen. Let's pray. 